And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this week we're spending some time with the Asian Cup, the primary competition for the national teams of the Asian Football Confederation. It's similar to the Copa America in South America, which the Asian Cup does not predate, and the European Cup in Europe, which it somehow does. When it when did it first begin play? Who are the most dominant teams in the tournament's history? And how much of it is Graham Ruffin able to multi-screen at any given moment? Here with me to answer all those questions, but uniquely qualified for the last one, is Graham Ruffin. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rotwell. I appreciate the compliment, but actually Asian Cup games mm-hmm. have not been broadcast on British TV. So the screen is in place, it's available and waiting for an Asian Cup signal or a match signal. But so far, that signal has not been forthcoming. So what will you not able do? To the screen. Uh, and if uh, if you are you going to have to go with um, dodgy streams, shall we put it? Uh, I mean, it depends who's listening to this. <laughs> Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, but Graham has not been able to watch nearly as much of it. We have not been able to cover nearly as much of it. I think the plan on the Total Soccer Show uh, at time of recording, the 2024 uh, Asian Cup is underway. We are planning to talk about it a bit more as we get to the later rounds. Yes. And the reason why we haven't really talked about it will probably come later when we talk about some of the issues and challenges that the tournament faces. But first, Graham, we should talk about the history uh, itself, starting with what it is. I ran through it briefly, but yeah. do you have any more to add on the the basics? No, not really. It's the confederational tournament for mm. the AFC, which is obviously the Asian Confederation. So as you ran through very quickly, uh, CAF has AFCON, CONMEBOL has the Copa America, UEFA has the Euros, CONCAF has the Gold Cup. You get the idea. The Asian Cup is the AFC's equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, regularity, Graham, how often is this taking place and when is it taking place? Because we've had a change there in relatively recent history. Indeed. So unlike AFCON or the Gold Cup, I guess, the the Asian Cup is played every four years. So it's similar to the World Cup or the Euros in that respect. They did change the, the scheduling cycle between 2004 and 2007, when basically the idea was to shift the Asian Cup into a fallow year, if you want to call it that, in the international fo- uh, football schedule, because when it was in its current uh, slot, or its previous slot, I should say, it was coinciding with the Euros and the Olympics. So it's now in the, ci- in the cycle where it's gone 2007, 2011, 2015, 2019, and that brings us all the way up to the 2023 Asian Cup, which is taking place as we record, as we record, confusingly in 2024, similar to Afcon, but that is because Qatar is the host country and they couldn't host in the summer, just as they couldn't host the World Cup in the summer. Mm. We need to stop giving tournaments to Qatar if they can't we host really them do. when they're yeah. If for number, numerous reasons, we need to but stop. But they're them setting tournaments. attendance records at this tournament. Whatever do you mean? Everything is wonderful and fine, and they're totally selling a bunch of tickets. Not sure I totally believe that. Anyway, (laughs) moving on. Um, So the first Asian Cup, Mm -hmm. so the AFC as a confederation, it was established in 1954 with 12 founding members. And then two years later, in 1956, you had the first Asian Cup, um, which actually, as you kind of referenced in your intro, 
makes it the second oldest continental competition after mm-hmm. the Copa America, which is somewhat surprising. That Very is something surprising. that I learned. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would have put the Asian Cup. I would have put the Euros. I, I mean, it doesn't. It makes some sense that the Copa America is the oldest. I probably would have put Euros second. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't have put Asian Cup second. So that was something new to me. And then CONCACAF. Uh, Chief, like top amongst them all, and first. Of course, in every yeah, that's category. just a given. Yeah, gotcha, that's gotcha, top, gotcha, top gotcha. of the pile, and then everyone else in world football, as Correct. we we know. Um, the first Asian Cup had a qualifying process of just seven teams, which is fairly interesting to see how that how that worked. Uh, and then the finals tournament had just four teams, and those four teams were South Korea, who won it and who won the first two, Israel, who were actually a founding member of the ASE, obviously now a member of the uh, UEFA. Hong Did something Kong, happen? Who, uh, yes, uh, something happened. Yeah, they got expelled in 1974 and then became a member of uh, UEFA. Hong Kong, who hosted the tournament, and South Vietnam. Yeah. So it's fair to say that when you look at those four teams, a lot has changed geopolitically yeah. since C- then. Because even that Hong Kong team is 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 when it's still under British control, right? So it's British control to Hong Kong, it's Israel, it's South Vietnam, and it's South Korea. Yeah, it, different times. Different times to 1956, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, by the time you get up to 1972... It is up to uh, 10 teams, and then it's 12 teams by 96, 16 teams by 2007, and then it was expanded to 24 teams for the 2019 tournament, and that's where we are now. It's the same format as the Euros and AFCON, where you have a group stage, top uh, two go through to the the last 16, and then the four best-placed, third-placed teams, if that makes any sense, um, join them to make up 16. Then it's the usual round of 16 quarterfinals, semifinal, and final. Um, the last four Asian Cups have taken place in the middle of the European season, much like AFCON. However, and this is where you found, maybe you found something else in your research, I don't think this is a, maybe unlike, unlike AFCON, I don't think this is a stance that has been set in stone at any time. As far as I can tell, this is something that is decided on a case-by-case yeah. basis. So the last two have been hosted by Qatar and UAE, so it made sense to host them in the winter because of the weather in the countries, uh, on those countries during the summer. But before that, you had 2015, and it was Australia that hosted it, also held in the winter, but they wanted to host it in the good weather because the good weather for them is the winter. So it's almost mm-hmm. kind of like a, a flip of that of that scenario, but it's still held at the, the same time. The plan, the 2023 um, Asian Cup was meant to be hosted in China. They were the originally handed the hosting rights for this competition. It was going to be in the summer, but that then ch- uh, changed due to China's uh, COVID policies, as far as I read. And it was shifted to Qatar and then shifted to the winter again. Uh, but yeah, I, I expect we will see a summer Asian Cup again at some point in the future, although the next one in 2027 will be hosted in Saudi Arabia. So that will also be a winter tournament. We've had UAE, Qatar, and then Saudi Arabia hosting the Asian Cup, and you maybe get a sense of the changing geopolitical landscape in that run of hosts. Yep, a couple a couple things in there that I think are really interesting when we talk about the the challenges inherent to the Asian Cup, and I think also why we have have covered it less or not focused on it nearly as much as we have, say, Afcon, uh, kind of comes in at this point because I think you do get generally speaking, broadly speaking, lower attendance. That is an ongoing issue, as I said. Uh, Qatar will tell you that they have record breaking attendance and. That at least numerically is true, but then you look at some of the attendances and the Qatar games are all between like 60 and 80,000. Some of the, the bigger, more powerful teams are getting closer to 40 or mid 30s, but then you're getting games that have four and 5,000 people there. And that is the problem, right? Is that you're getting some of the bigger games get really good attendance, but when you know it's not going to be as competitive, you don't get 
nearly as many supporters. And I think there's other economic and geopolitical factors as to why you might not get certain supporters of certain countries going to the host nation. Uh, lest we forget Saudi Arabia and Qatar up until very recently did not have diplomatic relations. And so it might be a little bit trickier for you to get certain groups of fans, uh, into games. And I think when you don't have that atmosphere, when you don't have that sort of raucous back and forth, it does lower the intensity. It does lower the appeal to a neutral spectator a little bit. Yeah, and low crowds has been a, an issue at a number of different Asian Cups. It's not just the, the Qatar um, Asian Cup that's suffering from this. It was an even bigger issue in 2019 in the UAE. Um, I don't think the issue is quite as bad this time. Obviously, you say factually, Taylor, it's record-breaking. I understand the divide there that you're, you're, you're talking about. But I have seen highlights of yeah. matches from this tournament and swathes and swathes of empty seats um, in, 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 in the stands. So I think the travel is an issue. The AFC uh, covers such a large area that there isn't a lot of travelling fans. Um, so if the tournament isn't hosted in a country with a large population, with an established soccer culture, attendances can be an issue. You've got the political um, factors as well that are baked into there that you, that, you, that you reference, and then here's maybe the elephant in the room with with uh, the Asian Cup and part of the reason why we haven't spoken about it so far. I think there is a bigger divide. I, I think the Gold Cup and the Asian Cup has this quite a large gulf in quality between the best teams and maybe the the, the lower uh, quality teams. Now we have had a couple of upsets at this tournament we had Iraq beating Japan but then Iraq won they, they, they do have some pedigree in this competition so it's only a shock to a certain extent we're Jordan drawing with South Korea as well but generally speaking I think there's quite a big divide between some of the minnows and then some of the bigger superpowers like uh, Japan or South Korea or Saudi Arabia um, and so the matches really generally only become truly competitive once you get into the knockout rounds, which is kind of where we will, I guess, pick up and talk about the tournament a little bit more. Yep. And then within the Confederation itself, I mean, if you have, to your point, like Australia wants to host in in January because that's their summer or because it's better weather, but then you have countries in the Middle East that have to host at certain points because it's just too hot to host at others. And then you have East Asian countries that, that maybe prefer, prefer the more like summer European schedule. So right there, you get this huge geographic uh, entity that you then also have different uh, climates, different conditions, different time zones, everything yeah. else that you have to kind of factor in when you are coming up with a plan for how to make a broad reaching competition that appeals to everyone involved yeah. it's a very tricky thing to navigate yeah absolutely and if we're talking about challenges that the asian cup has faced over the course of its history and we go back to the the political side of things yeah. obviously all tournaments have their political incidents and complications because soccer as we've covered before i think we did a soccer 101 episode on politics and soccer and um, soccer can never truly be removed from the world and the world has politics that's just the world that we live in but it does kind of feel like the asian cup has had more political in interference than most uh we've already mm -hmm. kind of referenced israel that's maybe the most notable one where israel is expelled from the afc in 1974 amid tension with a number of the arab nations within the afc Amazingly, I, I don't think I knew that Israel were in the AFC as a founding member. Um, and actually, Israel had to compete in the OFC, yeah, which is Oceania, until 1990 when they were admitted so into UEFA. Yeah, they must have clocked up some air miles around that time going to play Fiji and Samoa and, and, and so on. I, I, I would kind of, maybe that'll be a, a soccer dispatch newsletter at some point, Israel in the OFC. I don't know much about that period in It time. would be a good trivia question of which three confederations has Israel played in. Yeah. Because you could that, probably get two, then it gets a little trickier. You would never get, well, I certainly would 
wouldn't have got OFC as the third uh, confederation. You'd, you'd go CAF. I feel like most people would go CAF, wouldn't they? Yeah, probably. Like, yeah, they probably play yeah. in Africa or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, other instances, you have the uh, instances of tension between North and South Korea and North Korea refusing to host South Korea in qualification and matches being played at neutral venues. There has been political tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran, with Saudi Arabia refusing to play Iran. And then more recently, you had the blockade that was imposed on Qatar by Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain and Egypt in 2017, and you had the blockade derby between Qatar and Saudi Arabia in the UAE at the 2019 Asian Cup tournament. So, yeah, there's been some political uh, complication as well over the course of its history. And I'm going to try to navigate a potentially tricky thing and probably do so clumsily in the end. But you are always going to have historical relations, uh, factor into like soccer rivalries and so you have like dutch supporters in the 70s who still root aggressively against germany same thing for france because of what happened in world war ii and you have those historical connections you have those in the afc as well certainly you have plenty of east asian teams really enjoying when they get a result against japan put it that way and you're always going to have that but to your point graham there's that and then there are countries that like do not have diplomatic relations, refuse to deal with each other, uh, and that pertains to Israel, certainly, with their expulsion, but then also some of the ones you've talked about more recently. And that does feel like a unique situation. You've had countries in CONCACAF that have been at war with each other and then had to play soccer against each other. It still feels like this is a, a different yeah. next-level entity. Yeah, I mean, we, we have it in UEFA, of course, with the old England and Germany rivalry, mm-hmm. which obviously... Some people date back to the war and still uh, sing songs, kind of tiresome songs mm-hmm. about the war and so on. But as you say, these are these are live issues between yeah. governments and regimes and whatever that that don't have those relations. So everything just feels uh, that little bit more tense and that little bit more real in the Asian Cup, I think. One, one other question for you, Graham, when it comes to the challenges the Asian Cup faces. Let, let's, let's be real for a moment. Um, My assumption is that if we're talking about international competitions, confederation competitions, that I would say the Euros tends to be probably the highest quality. I would say Copa Mm -hmm. America is second. I would say Africa Cup of Nations is third. And then I think it's a toss-up between the Gold Cup and uh, the Asian Cup. And I think that is part of where... Uh, to my mind, at least the the lack of interest comes about is like certainly you have interest in the countries that are participating or the countries that could theoretically participate in the Asian Cup. But I think the broader perception, at least my broader perception, is that it is lower in quality, even if you have teams that have been good, even if you have very good players there. Generally speaking, across the board, you're getting significantly weaker teams, especially as you expand the format. And I think that does hurt that there is this idea sort of similar to the Gold Cup of like, yeah, you've got some random teams in the group stage, but ultimately uh, come get me when the semifinals are, are are in place. And I think that does hurt the competition, that it feels like you can not pay full attention to the group stage and still be fine when it comes to the knockout rounds. Yeah, and I, I think also the, the scheduling, certainly this year, hasn't really helped in mm-hmm. that it's clashing directly with... AFCON, Mm -hmm. which as we've just established is AFCON itself has its own issues with receiving mainstream coverage, but at the moment it feels like I kind of have to pick one or the other just because there's there's so much soccer and AFCON wins out. It's it, you know I, I I'm a Sterling Albion fan. You watch the Richmond Kickers. Mm-hmm. We're used to like just because soccer's it's a low quality 
uh, soccer team or whatever doesn't mean I'm not going to be interested in it. I like soccer at all levels. Uh, I guess I could say that about Manche- your Manchester United fandom as well more recently. Low quality soccer. Sorry, felt Thanks, just man. a little bit too Thanks. easy. Um, but yeah, the scheduling makes it a little bit difficult. The divide, some of the games are not so competitive in the early stages. Although actually looking through a lot of the group stage results, as I say, there, there's there's a lot I haven't seen. I've, I've only kind of caught highlights um, of this year's tournament, but some competitive score lines in there, a couple of upsets. So maybe I'm doing a, a, a disservice. We, we Yeah, we almost certainly are. Because I think as with anything, the more familiarity you... If we had done a, an in-depth preview where we had previewed every single team, I guarantee you that we would be much more captivated because we would know the ins and outs. We'd be more familiar with the less familiar players. And I think that would help to some extent with our general interest. But in talking about this iteration of the tournament and previous iterations... It's the expanded format that also hurts it. And I feel the same way about the Euros. I feel the same way about uh, AFCON, that when you have four of the best third-place finishers or whatever getting out of the group, it, it just feels like, like like we talked about this with AFCON, where like Nigeria didn't start well but could still could still get out. And now we have the host nation, Ivory Coast, who did not play well but could still get out as the third-place finisher. And it just feels, again, like it doesn't really matter because ultimately teams are going to get out even if they finish third. So let's see what happens in the yeah. knockout round. I really think that format change is not ideal. Well, it's the MLS playoff paradigm, isn't yeah. it? Come get me when the real stuff starts. Yeah, exactly, which is not what you want when it comes to your – uh, international competition, but such is life. In terms of the history of, of the competition, I also think it's really interesting, Graham, that my assumption with, say, AFCON, to draw a comparison, was that you would get nations that had sustained periods of success. And there are a few teams that have won back-to-back in AFCON or had good tournaments back-to-back or had consistent good showings. But I feel like, by contrast, the Asian Cup really does have just periods of domination. You have South yes, Korea winning the... Yeah, right? South Korea winning the first two. Israel wins one in there, but then you have Iran winning three in a row. Then you have Qatar winning one. But Saudi Arabia win three of the next four. Japan win three of the next four after that. Uh, more recently, it's a bit broken up. Iraq, uh, Japan, Australia, Qatar, your most recent winners. But it does feel like you have periods of dominance from one nation or a couple nations. And then more recently, it feels like it's broken into... Uh, more teams are able to compete at a sort of similar level. Yeah, and within those triumphs, you have some particularly notable ones. So 1992, that's when Japan, I believe, won the Asian Cup for the first time. So now they have won the Asian Cup more times than any other country. They've won it four times. But 1992 was the first time that they had won it. Um, So Japan being a a, a dominant power is a relatively recent thing um, when you look at the full history of the Asian Cup. And 1992 was a massive moment for Japanese football. Japan hosted it. They won it, as I say, but it did so much for the interest of the sport and the infrastructure as well. So the US obviously had the 94 uh, World Cup for those things. I would say the 92 Asian Cup was similarly important for Japan. And then from there, they obviously co-hosted the, the World Cup 10 years later. Um, there has been, while I agree with you, Taylor, and I see those phases as well, where you have South Korea, you have a Saudi Arabian period, you have a J- Japanese period. There has been four different winners in the last four Asian yeah. Cups. So Iraq won it in 2007, which was an incredible triumph given what was happening in the country um, even at that time. There was still conflict happening and and obviously a huge amount of upheaval in the years uh, prior to that and even after it. Then you have Japan in 2011. Then you have Australia in 2015, which is notable in itself because Australia only joined the AFC in 2007 
basically because they were too good for the UFC. They were they, they were the, scoring thirty plus goals against island teams in the UFC, so they joined a more competitive tournament. But then also, you have Qatar, also because right at that time UFC still only got the half qualification spot, right? So That's you can right. be as yeah. good as you were in Australia, and then you still have to beat a random team and hope that it's not a very good team. Otherwise, you don't end up at the World Cup. At least with the AFC, they have a guaranteed spot or likely a guaranteed spot. Yeah, that, that that that's right. Even though the AFC is certainly a more competitive um, sphere for them to be in, they have an easier route or a, a, a more a clearer route to to the World Cup. So yeah, Australia joined in two thousand seventeen. They went in two thousand fifteen, which is a big deal. And then Qatar in two thousand and nineteen. Um, Qatar winning in two thousand nineteen was a bit of a a surprise, mm-hmm. um, and we saw at the two thousand twenty two World Cup that. Maybe that was a little bit of a fluke. They certainly over overachieved at the 2019 Asian Cup because they weren't very good at their their home World Cup. But it's still a, a a big landmark moment. And also, if you look at the countries that have hosted, as I mentioned, UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, you can kind of sense a direction of modern traffic that is yeah. happening in in Asian football. So, with all that in mind, Graham, who do you think of as being particularly like legendary when it comes to the Asian Cup? So I think most people would look at Ali Di as the biggest legend in Asian Cup history. So he's the top scorer in the tournament's history. He scored 14 times in the tournament, but never actually won it for Iran. Um, some other names on certainly the all-time scoring chart. Uh, Almuaz Ali, who plays for Qatar, is the top scoring active player. He's got 10 goals. And then further down the list, you've got Tim Cahill, who scored six goals and was part of the Australia team um, that I mentioned that won it in 2015. Uh, Son Hung Min, Mehdi Taremi have five goals, so you might expect them to rise up the list over the next couple of tournaments. And then because of Japan's dominance over uh, dominance over a period, I'd say a good number of the players um, considered Asian Cup legends are Japanese. So Shinsuke Nakamura, a player that I know well, I watched a lot in Scotland, one player of the tournament in 2004. Amazingly, Nakamura retired last year when he was 44 years old, which is incredible. Uh, Kasuke Honda was another Japanese player who turned it on at the Asian Cup. He was player of the tournament in 2011. Obviously, when you're thinking of legends, your mind goes to legendary Asian players, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were Asian Cup legends. So Park Ji Sung, I think most people would consider the best, well, maybe it's uh, Song Kyo Min actually now, but one of the best South Korean players of all time, as far as I could tell, never made much of an impact on the Asian Cup. But Hyung Min Bo, who was his teammate around that time, defensive teammate, was a standout for, for, for South Korea in the, in the 2000s. And then another name, Yunus Mumad, uh, Mahmoud, excuse me, is the only uh, player to have ever scored in four different Asian Cups. He was part of the Iraq team that, that won it in 2007. Tim Cahill, not the player of the tournament the year that Australia won it, but he did have three goals. I think he was their top scorer. Would you put Tim Cahill on the list as a legend? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's part of that, as I say, that Australia Mm -hmm. team that wins it in 2015. He's an Australian icon. It feels like Australia at that time had a number of of high-quality players. They're going through a bit of a transitional period right now, but then they made the round of 16 at the 2015. Uh, 22 World Cups. What do I know about their their current team? Half of them are Scottish. Why can't Scotland <laughs> make the last 16 of a, a World Cup? How, we, our our offcuts are making the round of 16 at World Cups for other countries. But yeah, Cahill's on that list for me. Uh, Mila Yednak, you got to put him on that list. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you, you you definitely do what not a beard need to. Yeah. So Graham, the the other question then, as we look and you sort of alluded to when it comes to the uh, Asian Cup, is are we seeing? 
a change, so to speak, in in the dominance of who is going to win it, who's going to host it. Because we've seen, as you said more recently, it's been a mixture of winners uh, at different points. But it does feel like we've had more uh, Middle Eastern winners and more Middle Eastern involvement and importance than we've seen basically since like Iran were a dominant team. Yeah. So obviously this isn't just an Asian football thing because, mm-hmm. of course, Saudi Arabia in particular is making waves in the sport with the money it's spending on transfers and you have Qatar hosting the 2022 World Cup and uh, owning PSG and you have Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City as well. But yes, it does feel like the plates beneath Asian football are, are, are shifting and that can, that continues to be reflected in the in the Asian Cup. Having said that, yeah, Japan and South Korea are, are pretty strong right now. You know, and Australia, as I mentioned, are in a bit of a transition, but they made the last 16 at the 2022 World Cup. So there is still good competition there. It just maybe feels like we've gone through phases of it being, um, you know, Southeast Asia that's maybe having a period, Saudi Arabia having their period of dominance. Mm-hmm. And obviously now Saudi Arabia spending a bit more money, Qatar spending a bit more money. But it feels like maybe the superpowers are all in a pretty decent position mm-hmm. right now because I would say football in Japan as well is also enjoying a bit of a boom period, certainly in, in terms of their youth development and the grassroots players coming through. So it's probably a good time to start watching the Asian Cup. If, like me, this is a tournament that you don't have a, a great deal of knowledge of, I, I can't imagine I've watched... Uh, I think I watched the Qatar final in 2019 because that was a big story at the time, but I wouldn't say I've watched a huge number of matches. This feels like a good time to jump on and get involved in the Asian Cup because there is that competition between the superpowers. Yeah, I think, Grant, that that is the way to explain it because I think in my mind I had it as you had like more East Asian dominance for a large chunk of time and then we've moved away from that. In reality, I mean, 64 is Israel when they're still there. 68, 72, 76, Iran wins it. Then Kuwait, then Saudi Arabia, then Saudi Arabia, then Japan, then Saudi Arabia again. Japan win two, then Iraq. So it's not, it really isn't the narrative I had in my mind. It is much more so the teams that are dominant in the moment or have those sustained periods of success are the sort of dominant teams. And now it does feel like we've moved more recently into You have the perennial powers that are always going to be competitive, and then you have the emergent powers who have a lot of support uh, financially behind them that are maybe trying to close that gap a little bit. And so I think to have more teams that are now at that level where they could be considered powers or are emergent powers maybe, it does make it a more interesting landscape than I think it's probably ever been. Yeah, totally agree. Feels like the Asian Cup. We should be watching the Asian Cup, more of the Asian Cup. I'm going to watch some games. There we go. All right, well, I feel like that's a, a... a good note to end on in terms of uh, us coming away from this, not being sick of it, not being bored of it, but instead being very excited uh, to watch it and talk about it. So Graham Ruffin, thank you for helping uh, generate that excitement today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. I just want to watch more of The Cum Dog. That's all I want to do. I thought we could get through a whole episode without it. For people who are new to Soccer 101 and have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about, Graham, I'm just going to clear out and let you explain that one before people are like, what just happened at the very end of this podcast? (laughs) I'm not sure I can explain, but I'll give you some background. Jason Cummings, a Scottish-born player, had the bulk of his career in Scotland, moved to Australia, now plays for Australia, likes to go by the the nickname Cum Dog for reasons unknown. There you go. Gross. Thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) We'll talk to you next week.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.